We're here. We are here. Finally. We are here. We made it. Why are we here? Well, we're here to do some recording of um, La Podcast. Yes, let's talk about why Why the podcast, Louie? Well, hey, listen, I don't know if I have all the answers, but I do know this, that um, I've been told so many times over my professional career that it's it's inevitable. It's it must be in the cards that I'm going to do a podcast and uh, transfer some knowledge. And so, when I've heard it so many times, it seems inevitable that at some point I should pursue the direction that people are pushing me in. That's really been the story of my life. I've never really had a focus and uh, um, a dream or an aspiration. It just seems that I followed a path that I was guided to take, and it's afforded me a. I don't know, a fairly cool, exciting life. And I think this is just another part of that journey, you know, where, um, geez, I've experienced a lot. Um, and over the course of, you know, being in a profession for 20 plus years, you end up learning a lot. And uh, inevitably, I think transferring that knowledge is not only, um, for me, it's a joy, but it kind of becomes an obligation. And I like transferring knowledge. I like when people learn. And most importantly, I like when people um, feel good. And I think that's a part of what this podcast could be. So why podcast? Um, I'm not sure right now, but I think that we'll explore that and figure out exactly why this is happening. But in the meanwhile, I'm just happy to, to explore. Yeah. I think we got a long road ahead. I think this is going to be an awesome journey for me personally. I mean, being, um, working with you for the past couple of years, it's, uh, I've learned a lot, uh, just watching you work, seeing how you handle yourself with uh, people, and it's pretty inspiring. And I know we've kind of been talking about this for some time, and just it became so. And we were saying, what's it going to be about? What's the title? We were, we have a kind of a working title now. You probably want to share that. Yeah, I think it's called uh, Staying Alive with Louis J. And Staying Alive really because... Isn't that what we're all trying to do? I mean, really, uh, my goal in any of the businesses that I've had or in the, the family environments that I've helped create, and it's always been to be able to get people excited and happy and, and contribute to their lives and to their experiences. That's, I think, what really surrounds me. I like to make sure experiences happen, and I think about people. And um, I think about not always do we have it so easy. And in that, if there's just an inkling of insight, information, learning that, that maybe I've experienced or people that I know have experienced, and I can pass that along to help this whole notion of staying alive uh, become more enjoyable. And we're flourishing, and we're not just living, we're thriving, and you know, if there's just a little bit of information that maybe I've shared, then I think that's a cool thing. And that's where the idea of staying alive came from. Actually, um, like most things in my life, it's never my original thought. It's not my idea. Um, a good friend uh, suggested that, that, that the soundtrack for my life is uh, that Bee Gees track, Staying Alive. And uh, I mean, I've heard it probably a thousand times, but I've never really listened to the lyrics like I did when you started con connecting it to my life. And in fact, it is the story of my life. There's lyrics in that song that you couldn't 
describe my environment better. And so all of a sudden that started sticking like most things. I mean, even the notion of cabin, you know, the, the business that I built uh, five years ago, it was an idea. It was a conversation, you know, probably over far too much Merlot and too late at night, but uh, it became just a, a little thought and that thought just started to grow and we ended up developing and, that's very much how this podcast is starting. It was a, a notion, an idea, you know, a little nugget. And then the next thing you know, there was a purpose for it. And then there was a name for it. And then a soundtrack and uh, and a bunch of equipment. And uh, here we are. Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, I've, I've been really excited about putting this thing together with you. And um, I know we talked about, you know, what is it going to be? What are your intentions with it uh, moving forward? Yeah, and I've been thinking about w- what are the intentions, and I think that's the the magic of my life. And I would say part of the cool reason why uh, things come my way because I'm never really connected to the outcome. I, I don't know entirely what the intention is. I know along the way that, you know, I feel like I've connected or I've motivated or I inspired somebody to do something. And that to me then becomes, well, that's a great outcome. That's a good intention. Um, right now, at this time, I think it's simply to be able to, you know, um, to, to communicate with the things that I see and I've been exposed to and the experiences that I've had because, you know, I, I'm lucky enough that I travel you know, extensively and I get to see incredible things and and I get to do incredible things and things that people would only ever dream of. And they become part of my average every day. And I never want to take for granted that that's an average every day. It's a special moment. And some of the things that I've been able to, you know, see firsthand and experience and taste and touch and, and smell. um, I think that that's something that is interesting to a lot of people, you know, and, you know, I get a lot of questions about if I'm traveling to here, what would you recommend? You know, uh, how do you get those incredible upgrades at the hotels? And, you know, um, you always seem to get into the front row of something. And, yeah, there's there's a there's a, a, a methodology and a madness and, uh, and a navigation that gets me there. And I think that's experience and exposure over my life that allows me to make a plan, make a pact in my mind, and then go get it. And that's really where things have come from. So trying to understand what intention is, you know, and what the purpose is. All I know is this, um, that by this time in my, in my life, I'm 51 years old. And by this time in my life, I've experienced enough to know that there's a lot of stories. <laughs> and I'm sure we're going to hear about a lot of them uh, in further episodes. <laughs> well, let's hope they're entertaining anyway. I'm sure they will be. For, for some people that are listening for the first time that don't know who you are and they've tuned in and found us on uh, YouTube or podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, you know, who is, who is Louis J and um, your career and, and how, how did we end up here? Well, yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting story. Uh, Louis J, I'm uh, born, bred, raised in Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. Um, I'm a seasoned traveler. I've been able to experience uh, things around the world. Um, but getting to that point, um, I think, was probably not unlike most people and just simply trying to make their way up the ladder. And uh, I was no different. You know, um, 
I found myself at an early age being very, very focused. And it was going to be that my career was going to take me through the military. And I was starting off a, a young career in the military and cadets, uh, you know, 13 until 18. It was something that I was very driven and passionate for. It ended up doing very well. Were you influenced by somebody in the family uh, for the military or was that something that you came up with? Yeah, I think um, my great grandfather, you know, was uh, a, a very religious man, um, a, a devout Christian Baptist man in New Brunswick and uh, a very, very hardworking man. Um, his, his, you know, wish in life was to be able to serve his country. And he enlisted in the army, and I heard this story as a young boy, and it's always stuck with me. He enlisted in the army at a very young age and um, was prepared to serve the country and was doing some type of duty and was being told what to do, and he couldn't hear his commanding officer. And it became very clear very quick that my great-grandfather was losing his hearing and was going deaf. And, uh, in fact, uh, it was probably his saddest moment in his life when he was discharged for uh, not being able to hear. He had a medical discharge. And so his photo um, in his in his military uniform in one of those gold-gilded frames sits in my house um, as an honor to him and his dedication to our country and to his people and at a time when, you know, like, they were just young. They were yeah. so young. And so I always looked up to him in that. And when I was uh, introduced to cadets at a young age, there was always that, you know, romance in the background that I think my great-grandfather would be proud. Right. And I think that was always ushering me along. Little did I know um, that, you know, we walked into a bunch of people screaming at each other and push-ups and, you know, marching around a parade square. And that, that to me was entertaining right off the bat. I was somewhat terrified. I was thrilled. I was excited and I was hooked and I was there the next week and I was there the week after. And then finally I got the uniform and that was it. And at that point it was like, this is very cool. And I know that I shared that, that sentiment with a bunch of people at the time because we all felt it was really a piece of us. And um, I made it a very important piece of us. And I did, Training across Canada, uh, I was fortunate to be chosen to train in Banff, Alberta. I climbed the mountains, um, did glacier training, and then was selected to go and train in Germany because I gave it everything, like practically anything I do. I gave it everything. And I saw my future in my career um, being military. And how old were you at this time? Well, that would have been at the time when I'd reached those accomplishments, I would have been towards the end of my cadet career, which would have been 17, 18 years old. And so, you know, you're learning discipline and you're, you're learning who you are. And, you know, as a young, as a young boy, um, you begin to make some decisions that I think were heavily influenced by my time with cadets in the military. And in any case, um, it was Germany and my time in Germany with the Canadian Armed Forces. I got to train with them, and that was a big deal, you know. But I realized that there was something that was different about me that didn't fit with them. And uh, it wasn't a slight to them at all. It was just I was different. Like I, you know, I would try to break every rule that they had because I thought I could get around it. I was always trying to weasel my way through it. Um, but what I recognized was that I, I wasn't – um, I wasn't a soldier. I wasn't a follower. I was a natural leader. And in my cadet career, 
I had recognized that I'd grown in the ranks and I was naturally a leader in that position. However, if I was to go make a, a, a formal career out of this, I was going to have to reduce my rank and be at the low level, you know, uh, of a private or a corporal. Um, and I thought there was other things for me to do. And I think that's really where I began to understand that I was an entrepreneur through and through and through. And I mean, that takes me back to when I was a child and, um, you know, I was trying to sell stuff to people, even not knowing why, you know, um, I remember going door to door in the apartment buildings, trying to raise money for a Christmas tree for a concert that the school was having, um, <laughs> you know, and try to explain why there was no Christmas tree on the stage. You know, when the, when the performance came up, it was me trying to hustle. I was hustling. I was hustling, you know, at a very young age. And, you know, I, I, I started thinking more about, the hustle and how much more I wanted to do. And I thought that the military was going to hold me back. So I put the brakes on it. I was accepted at RMC. Um, I was going to do my university training with the Royal Military College. And um, I put the brakes on it. I held off. I found myself taking a part-time position, um, complete opposite of the military. It was with a fashion-forward clothing brand at the time called Le Chateau. Um, and that, you know, we're talking 30 years ago, um, that environment was for the wild ones. Yeah, they were, they were huge. That, that was my era. Right. Yeah, they were, they were huge and they were the, uh, one of the top fashion places in Canada. It was a, it was a big thing to get hired at Chateau, especially, you know, at a young age. Um, Chateau was, uh, my formal training. It was everything because, uh, I learned and got a degree in communication. Uh, it allowed me to speak to every walk of life. It allowed me to learn how to approach, how to listen. So this was an on-the-job degree. On-the-job degree. It really was. Um, I uh, ended up graduating that school of hard knocks uh, with flying colors. I was fortunate. I was recognized as the top performer in the chain a number of times in my time in, with Chateau and uh, I couldn't have been happier. It was truly a, a remarkable time where I was doing something that was new. It was fun. It was exciting. And I was performance-based. So give me a chance to be measured. And that made me even more clear on what really made me tick. And so I owe a lot to Chateau. I really do. I owe a lot to the people and the time that I was there. And do you remember the person that hired you? I do. We should reach out to them. We should. That'd be great. <laughs> yes. Yvonne. Uh, Yvonne was my hire. Um, and it's funny, too, because I knew nothing about it at the time. And that's kind of where my life has been. I've really not, like I said, been laser focused on the outcome. I've always just been eyes wide open, take a path, um, try it, see if it works. And if it does, great. If it doesn't, then take another path. And so as I look back on on my, my career and, like, you know, the, the story of Louie, uh, I found that it was really a great time and there was something else that was next and I didn't know what that was, um, but I formed an interest in owning and operating a restaurant. I couldn't wait and Chateau was a great learning for that um, and so it was a natural departure for me to one day just kind of shake hands and say thank you and move on and I was hired by um, the keg. And the keg was an incredible restaurant training for me. It was also a people environment. It was your success comes from how good you speak and how how well you perform. And, and that's where I think the foundation of making people happy was born. That's really where it was everything for me to make sure that 
whatever experience the customers were having at the table, I was in complete control. And when it went out of my control, for example, I remember uh, often, you know, something might not be cooked the way it should have been cooked. And uh, the customer would be upset by that. It was my job to turn the experience around to make sure that they knew that this was an anomaly and it's going to be better next time. And we're going to make it great right now. And that was my, that was my um, shining moments during the restaurant time. You know, um, in trying to figure out where and how, um, the next step for me was a good friend, you know, um, said, you really belong in advertising. You have a gift, you, you're creative, um, you're wasting your time, you don't really want a restaurant, and, and he was right. Uh, as much as I love the environment and the industry, it, it really wasn't, it wouldn't have been the right move for me. And so I had experience in management with Chateau, I had experience in supervision with Chateau, I had experience in management and being a floor um, key holder with the restaurant, so... Um, in some point you're managing widgets. And so I had an opportunity to go join an advertising agency as a production manager. And that was an entirely different space for me. And experience you, you had none experience. I had none. I am absolutely, I guess they would call it self-taught. Um, my experiences and my exposure are my, uh, are my teacher. It's uh, my professors, as it were, and I walked into an environment that I knew nothing about, but I did know how to organize. I did know how to um, kind of put process in place. I ended up uh, creating uh, efficiencies, which in turn created profitability, and we became known for how fast we were and how great we were, and the creative team was exceptional, and and they did their things, and I helped and enabled them to do theirs. And Is this so, in uh, Toronto? Yeah, it was in it was in North York. It was oh. a, a, um, a small agency that spent a lot of time in in food, um, the foodies, the uh, the grocery stores, and it was a grueling schedule. And it was everything from soup to nuts, photography right down to print. You know, going to do press approvals at three in the morning. Again, nothing that I'd been formally trained on. However. It became obvious that once I understood the production side of the business, it was enough for me to realize that I can offer value on the client side of the business. So I kind of learned really the ropes and 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 then managed the ropes and then became a really added value piece to the customer experience. And that got me back to experience. So how can I get in here and make a better environment for the customer, for the deliverable, the outcome, and for the team? And so I took on roles that uh, quickly had me um, go through the upper echelon to, you know, uh, client services, client services director, VP client services, and then eventually VP of the agency. One of your strong suits is your creativity. And I, I have to ask you, were you a little held back as a production manager at the time? Because, I mean, you have such great ideas. Was that, was that a challenge for you? I don't, at the time, I don't think it was only in that, um, there's the military training again, is that everybody's got a place and to make a really successful team, we all have to be great leaders and great followers. And in that case, the creative team was exceptional. Um, and there's always that challenge between suits and creative where, you know, one tries to influence the other and not always is it a good relationship, but we were fortunate. 
we could have input, you know, and it was respected. And some of the best ideas came from front reception. So that's the, the, the I guess, the, the benefit of being in the environment that I was in. We all wore many hats and we can contribute. And I got a chance to flex a little creative, um, you know, uh, freedom uh, or liberties, I guess, at the time. But um, it wasn't really me being creative. You know, I didn't have a chance to, to really work out the creativity side. Um, and I did, it did it in other ways, you know, I, I mean, I was probably the guy that, you know, if I look back at those photos now, I might not really want to see them. Um, because it was always a show, you know, if it wasn't purple hair, it was shaved hair. If it wasn't shaved hair, it was pointed boots. If it wasn't pointed boots, it was eyeliner. And, uh, you know, that at the time was, you know, a chance for me to be creative and have self-expression. Right. It was, accept it was a very exciting time. You know, we were running a very fast paced agency. We were being recognized, uh, awarded and uh, and rewarded. Um, at the same time, it was a chance for me to grow again, and I felt like that was a really neat and interesting place because it, it gave birth to the idea that I should be able to do this on my own. And um, after a number of years with the agency, I had left to start a small communications firm. It was called the Department of Communications. Nice. <laughs> And our recall rate was 100%. So, I mean, we were cold calling everybody we could. We had no business. We had no money. We were living on $333 a month. Did it you was, have partners? I had two partners. Mm. Um, an exceptionally creative uh, director uh, that had, you know, been to the show, won all the awards and been recognized and wanted to take a different approach and was kind of took me under his wing. And um, a production uh, manager for film and TV. Oh, and wow. uh, that was, it was a fun time, cool office down in the uh, heart of Toronto. And uh, it was us starving, trying to make it all work, but it was fun. And uh, we had a great time doing it. And, you know, one thing leads to another. And again, not having those blinders on took me on another path, which was um, some good friends of mine were uh, selling snowboard and, and, and uh, skiing paraphernalia. Um, you know, anything that got their adrenaline pumped, they were into outdoor action adventure sports. And they asked if I would write a marketing plan for a dot-com at the time when dot-coms were just reaching the height of excitement. and People were giving money away like no tomorrow. And so I wrote the marketing plan, came up with the visuals and the graphics and what this company could look like and the name. And, and we went and pitched it to an investment bank and a bunch of private Burton snowboards. Not Burton Snowboards, <laughs> yes. But along the same time, right. that was the height of it all, right? Um, but yeah, we went and pitched it to an investment group uh, in Montreal, and um, we thought we did really poorly. But on the, uh, on the contrary, we ended up actually um, asking for $250,000, and they gave us $500,000 to start the business. Fantastic. And we started uh, an action-adventure sports company online, um, when e-commerce couldn't even be spelt, you know, we were pioneers. We were really in early and it was very thrilling because, um, our investment group was so supportive. Um, it gave us a chance to flex our wings and, uh, and fly a little bit. We ended up doing, um, I think the unthinkable within six months, we went from a privately held company to trading publicly on the Toronto stock exchange. Wow. Yeah. It was very, it was rapid fire. And you're, you know, a bunch of punk ass kids uh, with tattoos and, you know, founders of a, a dot com in the Canadian marketplace, you know, 
inevitable failure was on the horizon. There's no question we weren't going to make it. However, we did. We made it. We made it for round run of one of financing. We made it into round two of financing. Um, we did road shows. We went all across North America talking about the brand. We became recognized. And uh, lo and behold, um, a company called The Baines Report, along with Globe and Mail, published the top 25 e-businesses in North America. In and, North America. Yes. And so this gives you a good indication that these punk-ass kids from Mississauga <laughs> and Oakville could create something that would have held that clout. Uh, we ranked number 23. Wow. Yes. <laughs> 23, which, you know, got us a full-page ad. Uh, not ad, I guess, a full-page write-up on a supplement that was put in the Globe and Mail in the business section about e-commerce and the business behind e-commerce. And uh, I was fortunate enough to do a bit of a speaking tour talking about permission marketing before we even knew what that was, uh, email campaigns before text messaging. And uh, it was a very, very fun and new time. It was exciting. And it made me realize that I've got an appetite for, uh, for the nuances, uh, for the risk, um, because I'm, I've never really been afraid of anything. There's really nothing that stopped me from taking that leap where everybody else says I can't I could never do that. Could you look back when you were a kid? Was there anything that happened to you at a time when you were a kid that you recognized that? I don't know. I'd have to I'd have to look back, but I mean, I think that I was always daring and willing and I was I put myself into a place of vulnerability. And that's because uh I looked different than everybody else. You know, I was the only kid in the school with, you know, like uh well, I can't even describe it, but whatever they were wearing, I wasn't. And so in saying that, it always had uh, one of two effects. Either people didn't understand me and were afraid of me and uh, wanted to hurt me. And that, that was true. The, the, you know, some of the guys were very threatened by this, you know, punk, I guess, this new wave kid that came in. And the other side of it was people that were intrigued and inspired and wanted to get to know me. And luckily for me and for everybody the second part of that group won. They always were bigger. There were more of them. And then they would slowly, you know, become almost like an ambassador uh, for me and, and talk about the fact that I'm a nice guy and I'm not, you know, I don't look like I act. And I guess that the combination of those two things afforded me the opportunity to make a lot of friends. And I loved it. I mean, school uh, at a young age and looking back at that now, I have nothing but, you know, smiles from ear to ear because I was fortunate. Not everybody was. And I was lucky enough that I could be the glue between the jocks, um, you know, the brainers, uh, the Ginas, the, the, the smokers. Like uh, there was all these different groups like any school would have, but I was able to move seamlessly from one group to another group to another group because I was interested in all of them. And for some reason they all found, they found enough and to give me the time to be interested in me. <laughs> <laughs> so you're doing this speaking tour across North America, and, it, you know, where does that take you? Well, it ended up um, capturing the attention of, of um, a small advertising agency, the one that I had spent time with earlier in, in the career. Um, they wanted me to come back and consult, and... Like every other dot-com at the time, you know, we suffered our lumps. Um, we expected the last round of funding, and it never showed up, and everybody looked at each other and looked at the warehouse and looked at the supply and thought, I think this might be over. And so that was a very humbling experience. I mean, 
you go from, uh, I never traveled first class, but some of my business partners did. Um, and they would rent, you know, very expensive cars. I was very much more practical about it. But we were living in a life where uh, some of the investment people would order six and $700 bottles of wine and have a saying that said, life is too short for cheap wine. You know, we were exposed to that very quickly. We were told, we were told, don't tell your, if you're married or you have a girlfriend, don't tell your wife or your girlfriend or your family how much money you're about to make because you're going to be very wealthy. Don't tell them your stock number. Don't tell them where you're trading. Don't tell them anything. And so we were taking all this advice from people that were way different than us. You know, they had more zeros at the end of their, their names than we could ever, ever, ever imagine. And so, wow, they were actually telling you this. Yes, yes. Fantastic. We had, we had a bunch of seasoned gray hairs in the investment world that said they've seen relationships made and broken from money. And it was a great lesson early on to recognize that it really isn't what I was interested in, nor would I ever work for it. And I can comfortably say that I've never worked for money ever. And I think that's because um, I feel like it was, it'll always follow you. If you're doing good stuff, it'll come. And I think that that's, you know, we, we, we like everybody else, suffered the downfall. And it was easy come. Well, I can't say it was easy, but it was, it was you know, work, work and put effort in to get your reward. But then it could be gone in a minute. And so don't count on it. Don't rest on your laurels. And I think that people need to understand that today where, you know, uh, overnight you could be out. And that was fundamentally what happened to us. We ended up learning how to uh, wind down a company, a publicly it, traded company. That's but it wasn't big... something that you guys were doing. It was just how things were shifting. Is that Yes. It was a, it was a condition of the environment, um, the financial environment, the tolerance for creating businesses that really weren't producing profitability. Nobody cared at the time. You could piss uh, gold nuggets and uh, they'd go find more gold for you. Yeah, there were so many things that were dot-com. And I remember people, I was in the production industry, all these special effects guys were investing in all these companies that you never heard of. Right. Because it was a dot-com. It's like, this is going to get to, you know, Four dollars a share in the next and week, with no promise ever to be profitable. It never was part of the equation. No. Nobody cared. It's about how many people can we have in your community, how many pieces of data can we collect, and what value is that? And so, all of a sudden, it started to to skew your mind around what does money really mean, and how easy is it to go get? And they always said to us at the time, and I never understood it, but I do now. You know, your million is your first million is the most difficult to make, and uh, I thought, well. <laughs> I don't have many plans on making much more than that. I didn't have plans on making a million to begin with, so I didn't care. I really didn't care. I was more excited about putting a double-page spread ad in um, men's health, you know, or get outside or outside. I forget the magazine at the time, but I knew that when I wrote the check for $60,000 to place an ad in there, I felt like I'd finally made it, you know? Right. Um, and, of course, it was a fun, exciting time. It, it got me to... Back to advertising, um, so that I could I could have a little bit more control again, you know, because we suffered that that shutdown where we went from something to nothing, and uh, you know you had to eat some humble pie. And I was fortunate enough though that all these articles that had been written and the speaking tour um, garnered the attention of people that I was you know happy to be around, and they were they were um, making a big difference in a small agency world.
and wanted me to come back in and consult. And I was fortunate. I went back with those guys. I ended up spending some time with there. We explored the idea of voiceover technology and voiceover IP because that was hot at the time. What's yep. the next .com? It's going to be voiceover. And so, you know, that's not really me. Technology is, you know, I think a tool. It's not my love and passion, um, but I do love being around people that love it because they make me look good. They make me sound better. And, you know, I think they make my productions all work. So I respect it, but it's not me. And so I wasn't that interested. However, I was interested in making people happy. And I recognized that those agency, uh, the agency was suffering some challenges where their clients weren't overly happy with them. Mm. And um, I had a chance to sit on meetings and take control. And How does one go about getting that kind of feedback from clients like that? Yeah, I was very, uh, very upfront. I mean, that goes back to the Chateau days and learning how to approach the situation. And um, I would I would listen more than anything. I think that's the number one challenge today is that people don't take time to listen. They're so eager about expressing their thought so that they can be heard, they can be validated. And that was what I saw happening in the agency because, well, the creative director needed to, you know, put his thumb on the, the piece, had to have the last say and, and had to do it with authority. Otherwise, that wasn't strength and that wasn't determination. That wasn't... It wasn't what they what they thought they wanted. And what I did is I listened. I found that, yeah, the creative was average. It wasn't great. That the concept was okay, but no different than anybody else. And so when we had that, you know, come to Jesus moment with the client and they're ready to fire the agency, I asked for forgiveness. I said, can you, can, can we just back up for a minute? Can we step back here? And can you let me take a look at this? On a, on a broader scale, can I, can I, can I spend some time with it? And, uh, cause right now I can't help it. I agree with you. I agree with you that the creative is, is average, that, that the, that the, um, the approach could be better and your outcome is no different than anybody else. And so they gave me that permission and I came back, uh, after listening and made recommendations and it saved the, uh, client agency relationship to the point where I went on to continue helping and and listening and injecting my opinion and recognizing that over the years I'd gained some knowledge and thought this is a good chance for me to help this agency that really I kind of, I, you know, I cut my teeth with. Yeah, they're like family to you. Yeah, and I really wanted to do, you know, them a service, myself a service, and the client a service and Ended up creating some some great pieces following that. And I spent about a year, a year and a half with them in that transition time. And the reason I say transition is I just had a baby. It was our first, uh, my first daughter, Madeline. And so, you know, what happens in that first year, it's just, it's crazy. It's chaos. You don't know what you're doing. And so this was for me some stability at the time. I knew that it was maybe a platform to go do something else, but I didn't know what that something else was. Um but then it became quite clear that I have to have my own agency. I have to create an environment that I can be in complete control of and I can work with clients that I feel are the right fit for me and for the people that are around me, you know, and, you know, whether I'm never, I'm not proud of this, but I ended up leaving that agency and that client which happened to have been the world's largest in their category, in their sector. We were fortunate that in the Canadian operation, we had um, we had the opportunity to create, you know, meaningful creative and marketing tools and um, 
uh, sales tools where they were going to be seen all around the world, you know? So I felt very accomplished there. And I, like I said, I'm not proud of this, but that client came with me when I started the agency. Wow. Yeah. And I, I would, I never want to take anything off anybody's plate. Right. And, um, the only way that I slept at night at the time was really recognizing that they, they were leaving anyway. If I wasn't there, they were gone. And so that for me was a way to be able to say, well, at least I can take care of you um, and we can continue. And they really kick-started my agency. At the time, I called it Warwick, Manzo, and Dunn, WMAD. Um, I wanted it to sound like an investment house uh, or an accounting firm because I didn't think it was reasonable to say this should be the Manzo group or it should be taxi or jump or, you know, pillow, something cool that a creative agency would call themselves. Mm -hmm. And so I called it Warwick Manzo and done because nobody was doing that. And I wanted to sound like I was a firm, you know, like I was something bigger than I was a bunch of freelancers in the basement with Macs that were the size of, you know, your grandfather's TV. It was it's massive. Like a, like a Madison Avenue studio or, right. or agency. Right. Something that would have had partners. And I guess as the story unfolds, the funny part about that was, you know, we went on to be an award-winning agency in in Toronto and had clients that uh, went across North America. We said yes to everything. Like there was, if I didn't know how to do it, I went and found somebody that did and I became great friends with them. They became partners of the agency and we developed so far lifelong relationships. I have relationships that are 30 years old in this business um, and know a lot of people. And the... Um, Along the way, we won our clients' awards, and I remember being at an award ceremony, and I'm not an award monger by any stretch. I could care less. My, my goal and my reward is the people that I'm serving. And even in Cabin, you know, like I just posted the other day that uh, I, we don't care about recognition except for the people that are in the chair and that walk through the door. That's who I care about. And so when we were at an awards ceremony, uh, the client said, you know, I've never met your partners Um Warwick and Dunn, you know, given the agency was Warwick, Manzo and Dunn. And I said, are you kidding me? Like we've been working together for like four years and you, you don't know the story. And he said, I don't know the story. And I said, oh my God, but I feel terrible, but there is no Warwick and there's no Dunn. There's never been a Warwick and Dunn in this mix. <laughs> <laughs> and he looked at me and he goes, my God, you're brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, because I only took you guys on because I thought you were a big agency. <laughs> and so there you go. He says, you probably are the best marketer that I've ever met. And it was, it was a direct relationship to the fact that I marketed the agency to be something that we weren't. Uh, I was simply Manzo. There was no work. There was no done. I used to always joke to say when the, when the conversations came up that, Work was taking care of our New York office and Dunn was our Asian contingent and he's really busy out there right now. He's sailing somewhere <laughs> He's somewhere around the world. But um, I always thought that was a funny story and, and, and I never really told people unless they asked. And of course, as soon as they did, I, I told them the truth um, because I, uh, I, think, I think it's funny. I think it's just... Um, it's genius. Well, in some ways, maybe it is because it gives people... Here's the other part, right? You recognize that it gives people a predetermined or a preconceived notion of who and what you are just by what you say you are. You know, they didn't, they never met the partners. They just knew that we did good work and that was enough. You had to do good work. You had to deliver. But um, 
in their mind, it was a full-on production. It was like partners and other offices and anyway, so that's that I've had that agency now for 20 21 22 years and uh we've gone gone through the gamut. I've been fortunate that almost all of my clients have turned into great friends. My goal is to make them shine. The materials that we put out in the marketplace um almost always hit the mark like we very rarely have missed and if we've missed then we go back to correct and so i've had a great relationship and i've been given the autonomy by these client friends to go and do me because i'm always concerned about what they look like and i think that's the bigger story here that you know in developing who louis j is um i'm deeply connected to what people experience and whether that's we're having a meeting together to discuss the strategy of your new launch or we're having a meeting together to talk about you know the pocket squares that are going to go on the shelf here at at cabin um i want to make sure that the the meeting itself um is elevated it 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 made you feel you know different it made you feel special to that point you know i i don't have meetings in boardrooms i almost always insist that we go someplace else whether that's the lobby of a hotel. I've had meetings in the Ikea cafeteria. I've had meetings in the back of a cabin. I've had meetings in cars. I mean, I've had, I've had them everywhere except for where you would think you should have a meeting. And, uh, and they've all seemed to have been, you know, received in the right fashion where it turns into something magical. And I'm lucky. I mean, I've got great client friends, you know, that they recognize too that I'm working to make them look good and to mitigate the risk um, get them their bonuses, get them their vacations, make sure that their their senior leadership teams recognize how much effort they put into making this happen. And uh, when all of those boxes are checked, then I think I've done a good job. You know, and so, geez, that almost takes us to where I am today. And that's, uh, let's say, 20 years of advertising and marketing and building brands and brand experiences and engagement and enhancement and sponsorship and one, oh one would think that's that's enough. <laughs> one <laughs> one but, would think but that's not, enough. Not you. <laughs> I just don't think that there is reason to slow down. I mean, um, th- that's common. A uh, uh, comment is always made where it's like, how do you sleep? Like, do you have time to sleep? And, you know, I always come back with a joke where it's like, they say, how do you do it? And I'm like, recreational drugs all the way through. But that's not the case. That's not the truth. I'm motivated by... Um, people's excitement. If I can, if I can go and build something, deliver something, create an environment, create an experience, like I am driven to make that exceptional. There's two things to that. It's like building that and then sustaining that. I mean, you've had cabin here, uh, your Mississauga location for was it? Five, is it five years? We're coming up to five years. That's yeah. right. And sustaining that. Well, and I think that's a true testament to the people that I bring. Uh, in to be beside me you know my my team uh, I very rarely ever um, consider them staff uh, or working for me Um, I've never considered myself a boss Uh, some people refer to me as a boss I think in in jest because it's funny and it's it's not really what it is Um, but I've been I've been smart enough to recognize that you're only as good as the people you surround yourself with and in that case Uh, And everything that I've done, I've had people that are better than me. You know, um, Cabin's a perfect example of it. Yes, this notion, this idea was given to me, and then I ran with it. And 
I was, and I still am very excited about creating an exceptional customer experience. Service is everything. And I know it intimately. So putting all the little pieces in place to make service become our true door knocker, our opening, um, to me was just, yeah, that's what makes me excited and happy. You know, creating the environment and the, and, and the experience from the moment you walk in, um, that goes a very long way. Uh, however, if you don't follow up and have the next pieces in place, it'll die as fast as it started. And right. what I mean by that is the haircut has to be exceptional. The experience with the barbers in the chair has to be exceptional. The conversation needs to be fluid and it needs to be relevant and it needs to be right. And it needs to be more than anything authentic. But it's not canned. Like, you know, no. I'm a customer of yours, as you know, it's, it's not canned. It's, it's very authentic. If it's not authentic. And that's, I think, another piece of this puzzle where authenticity has to be uh, at the core of everything you do because you'll be found out. It'll be recognized that it's not authentic. And then everything you've done to make those pleasure points and those touch points where people walked away going, that was exceptional, they're going to dismiss it because they'll recognize that it wasn't. And at some point, you're going to be found. And so for me, the easiest way to avoid that is just to be authentic and to be real and to create an environment that says, yes, we do have a structure and a procedure. We need to make sure that our customer experience is consistent. You know, so when it comes down to me scripting what that experience looks like, it has things like a greeting at the door. But that's his greeting. That's her greeting. It's not me saying we have to say this. You know, it's not somebody insisting. I mean, the only thing we really insist on is that we create a, a warm and inviting and welcome space. And we use a language around how we talk to people. And we call almost everybody that walks through our door, bud, because to me, there's not a better compliment to be paid. If you are at the level where you're my bud, mm -hmm. then we're buds. Right. And this is the environment where it's very pedestrian. It's not overproduced. It's meant to have scratches and bumps and hiccups. And, you know, it's, when you talk about authenticity, it, this is a real reason that it is because we show the flaws as much as we show the shine, you know? And in saying that, you know, Bud is part of that conversation, but it's it's his version of Bud. It's, it's her version of Bud. It's what happens at the chair. And all of a sudden, you recognize that you're in a different space here, you know? And that is also translated into the other environments that I create. National sales meetings, conferences, trade shows, um, product launches. And it's been said that part of the strength that, uh, or I guess the benefit that I bring to the table is that I help create the culture of the environment that I'm serving. So in corporate, you know, if you don't have culture, well, it doesn't matter. Corporate doesn't matter. If you don't have culture in any of your work environments, if you're missing that human touch, that, that, uh, empathetic side of the business, like how you really feel for them, then, then you're missing the point. Like you really, you end up uh, losing the battle because culture is everything. Mm. It's everything. And, and so if I can influence, you know, um, in a pharmaceutical, you know, where there's 160 people and I get the general manager pulling me aside, you know, saying, do you have any idea what kind of influence you've had on our culture. And it makes me realize that my work is being done, 
You know, I'm, I'm there for a purpose and a reason. And I, I want to help influence that. I want to make sure that that new hire that just came from that other uh, competitor or that other pharmaceutical or that dental manufacturer, whatever, wherever they came from, I have to make sure that I've created an environment at the events that I manage and I host. And whether that's, you know, an internal launch in the, in the, in the office, or if it's at a, a 5,000 person conference that I've created a space for them to walk into going, wow, I'm glad I'm here. I didn't I made, expect I made, this. I made the right choice. I made the right choice. <laughs> right. And that's, uh, that's a lot, a lot to be said because you can have other people out there that are pushing that our message and our, our commitment and our company. And, you know, they're putting an outward message. Um, but in a lot of cases they forget that inward message. And um, that's hugely important in producing a strong outward message. And so, you know, I think that, those are some of the things that I like to spend my time doing, you know, um, building the cabins, uh, has been a thrilling part of my life. Um, having a uh, time in corporate and, and twisting the way that they do things has been a very thrilling and exciting time of my life. And I think those are feel good, very proud moments for me. And, uh, I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm fortunate. I recognize that I've been given, um, kind of a stage to do that and, I think that really is me in a nutshell. Beyond that, of course, you know, if I wasn't to speak of my family, then I wouldn't be, I'd be leaving out half my story because I'm so grateful that, you know, I, I uh, met my wife at a very young age. Um, I was 17. Tammy was 16. You know, true uh, young love, sweetheart. Uh, was it uh, school, school? school uh relationship with school high, high school. school sweetheart high school sweet thank you high school sweethearts um you know and uh i won the lottery there you know I, we got together young and by all accounts we should have been divorced three times by now but we've never that that we wouldn't even be able to understand that word we're so far fetched from it we're always the couple that everybody one of our friends would compare themselves to saying you know what would louie and tammy do and that was a lot of pressure however it's natural, and I'm fortunate. I've got the best relationship uh, anybody could ask for from a partner, from from a, a soulmate, as it were. And, of course, along the way, we did a bunch of traveling, had a lot of fun, and then realized at some point we're going to have a family. And so 21 years ago, we had my first child, Madeline, um, and I'm having a great time as a father of a 21-year-old, and she's she's exceptional. Like, life is great. Um, my middle child, Macy, um, who's 17, and then my youngest, uh, Miller, who's 13 years old. And so I'm at a time in my life where I think I can be a good guide, you know, um, without putting too much pressure on them. I think that there's a chance for them to grow and flourish and, and learn. And uh, I'm hoping to be that guide that kind of gets them into whatever it is that they're supposed to do and be happy with. So you know, I've, I've, I've been really fortunate there. I've had a good family uh, environment and more so now than ever with COVID and everything that just happened to us or is happening to us. It really gave us a chance to bond and connect as a family. 